Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. He's one of those famous people no one has ever heard of, especially outside of Alberta. Two creeks, two buildings named for him, a hiking trail, a ridge in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, a Canada Post stamp. He pioneered irrigation in southern Alberta. He was the fastest, the strongest, the best. Most of what you think you know probably begins and ends with the mythology created by this book, written in 1960 by historian and former Lieutenant Governor of Alberta, Dr. Grant McEwen. John Ware's legacy is trapped inside that mythology. I'm here to start a new conversation. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. When you think cowboy, what do you see? The Stetson hat, a big belt buckle, a bullwhip? Maybe you see John Wayne, or Gary Cooper, or Woody from Toy Story. What if I told you back in the Wild West years of America, if you saw a real cowboy, there'd be a one in four chance they'd be black? Nat Love, Bose Icard, and Bill Pickett are among those who transform the face of the profession, both literally and figuratively. And John Ware stands among them, obscured by time and mythology. Much like John Ware, director Cheryl Fogo's family came to Saskatchewan at the turn of the 20th century alongside other black farmers who escaped persecution in the United States. The Fogos would spread across the prairies, but despite what they had heard about Canada, the prejudice they faced in the South would continue to haunt them, even in pop culture centuries later. Growing up in Calgary in the 1960s, Fogo, like most kids, was fascinated by the Calgary Stampede, Cowboys and Horses. But most of what she knew came from television, where people who looked like her went unseen. All of the TV shows, the Cowboys were were white. Uh, if there was someone black on the screen, it was some, the cook or the helper kind of thing, and there was very few of those even. In truth, black cowboys were ubiquitous. But we couldn't have known that. It was a history that wasn't available to us or anyone else. Then one day, long after their fascination had disappeared, Shell's brother Richard visited the Glen Bow Museum in Calgary and saw an exhibition about John Ware. I remember the absolute shock, almost elation of seeing this John Ware picture and a bit of a display. Um, and so the, the idea of here in our area was this fairly famous black cowboy was astounding. That day, that discovery was the genesis of this journey. The journey became a presentation about John Ware at the Calgary Stampede, a play called John Ware Reimagined, and now a documentary that looks to unpack the myths about him. Cheryl Fogo joins me to talk about the man, the myth, and the legend of John Ware. Stay with us. Well, Cheryl Fogo, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. 
Well, I guess the first question is kind of an obvious one, but who was John Ware? John Ware was an African-American cowboy who came to Southern Alberta in 1882 on the first big cattle drive that came into the area. So 1882, after, I guess, the Civil War. Long after, well, you know, I guess it felt like long after in in his lifetime, but yeah, almost 20 years after. Um, he had been enslaved somewhere in the southern U.S. I address that point in the film. Uh, and he had come up from a, a cattle drive from Texas and was in Idaho and Montana for some time before being hired on by Tom Lynch, who was the boss on that big cattle drive. He stayed in Alberta after, uh, after coming here. He never left. He never went back to the States. And uh, this is where he lived the rest of his life until he died in 1905. Is he very well known in Alberta? That's a great question. He should be better known. Depending on where you go, he's well known. So in the places where he lived in southern Alberta, the, the Millerville, Turner Valley, High River area, he's quite well known. In the Brooks Duchess Gem area, which is in southeastern Alberta, he's quite well known. In Calgary, you know, I'm going to say 15% of people have heard of him. There are a number of geographical locations that have been named for him. So there's a John Ware building on the SATE campus, and there's a John Ware Junior High. But you know how it is when a building is named after someone. Not everybody bothers trying to find out who that person was. So... You know, there's there's some awareness of him in southern Alberta. He should be much, much better known in the rest of Alberta and in the rest of Canada, as far as I'm concerned. Well, your film is titled John Ware Reclaimed. Why do you feel he needs reclaiming? There hasn't been a major work done about John Ware's life since 1960. And prior to my project, there had not been a, a significant or major work done about his life by a person of African descent. So both because he was originally written about so long ago and everything that has been written or said or made about him since that time was based on that 1960 text and since I felt that 1960 text had some um, some problems and, and things that I felt needed to be recontextualized. Um, that, that in itself is, is reason enough. I also think we're much more aware now of how important it is for people from racialized communities to tell our own stories. So I think it was um, also that I felt as a person of African descent myself, who has lived my whole life in the same area where John Ware lived and whose life has been impacted by his life, I thought a reclaiming from my perspective was also in order. So this book uh, that you mentioned uh, was written by Grant McEwen. 
That's right. And it's called John Ware's Cow Country. Mm-hmm. And is it meant to be a work of historical accuracy or is it is it kind of like playing with fiction at all? Like, how would you, I guess, characterize the the portrayal? I think it's a mixture. I I can't speak to what Grant McEwen was thinking about the book or how he would have described it, but it seems that it's uh, an attempt to take some of the facts from John Ware's life and to honor the importance of John Ware to this part of the world, but to tell it in a, in a, way that he thought was was telling a story. Obviously, a great deal of it is made up. Grant McEwen wrote the book 50 years, 55 years or so after John Ware had died. So he wasn't there to hear those conversations that he portrays in the in the book. He has no idea what was actually said in those situations. So obviously, the dialogue is made up. And I think that's a fairly common way of writing historical nonfiction. And he also tries to create a persona for John Ware. And he chooses a voice. He gives him a voice that is, I feel, not uh, not an accurate voice based on my experience of many, 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 many people of African descent who, like John Ware, were enslaved in the South. Uh, and then came up to Canada. Nobody I know from any of the places that I know them from, including Kansas, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, uh, Texas, many, many of the southern states, they don't talk like that. They don't sound like that. It's Mm -hmm. like an attempt at replicating a sort of how Hollywood portrayed people of African heritage speaking way, way back in the day. So it's kind of stereotypical? Stereotypical, but not based on an original notion, not, not based on something original. It's, it's a stereotype built upon a made-up notion of how people talked. To what extent do you think uh, his book, I guess, um, created a mythology around John Ware? Grant McEwen was a really lovely man and a very important figure in Alberta. He held many positions such as Lieutenant Governor. He was the mayor of Calgary. Uh, He was an educator. He was a historian. He wrote, I think, something like 60 books. So he himself is a figure that is somewhat mythological. He's certainly iconic. So the fact that it was him writing the book lent stature to John Ware's story. So it was both a blessing in that because Grant McEwen was important and he thought John Ware was important, people paid more attention. But it's also not a blessing because there is a a lot of mythology that's built around what's known or what's believed about John Ware that comes from the book that is not necessarily helpful or accurate. So I, I think that's a, um, that's a kind of a complicated answer to your question, Mm -hmm. 
but I do feel the book is responsible for a lot of the mythology around John Ware's life, and that is in part because of the importance of Grant McEwen. Your film mentions a few other uh, black cowboys, um, and you know you could have written or done a film about, I guess, any of them, I guess. But uh, I, I wonder what what spoke to you about John Ware's life. Why why did you feel like his story needed telling? Well, to address um, the notion that I could have made a film about any of them, any of the other black cowboys that were around, I would have loved to. I would love to be able to share more about their lives. But as I point out in the film, records about people of African descent have been very precariously preserved. So there is not very much available to me as a filmmaker to tell the stories of those other black cowboys. I know of their existence through a few historical references, newspapers, mentions in dusty old books that I found here and there, um, mentions by John Ware's children in their memoirs and, and notes about their lives. But I don't think I could make a film about any of them. So in part, <laughs> what drew me to making a film about John Ware is that there were at least some records available for me that were created after he crossed the 49th parallel in 1882. There's very, very, very little available about his American life. But there, I had enough raw material that I, I could uh, make a film about him. So I was drawn to the mythology of cowboys as a child. Uh, John Ware was such an outstanding cowboy and rancher and human being that I was drawn to him for many, many different reasons. And it would have been nice to be able to make a, a film about John Ware and all his pals but as a filmmaker, you need images. You know, films are, are told through images. So, you know, as you'll note, um, I have a stand-in for John Ware in the person of Fred Whitfield, who is a, a current black cowboy uh, from Texas. And that mm. was in part because there are not very many images uh, available of John Ware himself. Yeah, I guess, you know, Growing up, we were accustomed to seeing white cowboys portrayed on film. Um, you know, thinking of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, you know, portraying cowboys in the Old West, but you rarely saw African American um, portrayals, at least in a positive way. In in Canada, certainly, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of, I guess, um, uh, material or not material, but you know, portrayals that I guess would be uh, uh, as well known to the Canadian public, right? I would go further and say that there was nothing. I can't remember, apart from the images that my brother discovered uh, about John Ware when he went to the Glenbow Museum, I can't remember a single portrayal of a black cowboy in any of the pop culture that I was consuming as a kid. Not one. The notion that perhaps as many as one in four cowboys were black was something that I didn't uh, become aware of until I was in my 20s. And, and one four in Canada, you mean, like not just the U.S.? Um, no, I would say the numbers were probably 
the ratio was probably smaller in Canada. I mean, we had a much smaller cowboy community in general. Um, but yes, one in four North America wide might be the best way to say it. And that it was really a multiracial community. There were many, many indigenous cowboys. There were many Mexican cowboys. Um, there were probably other groups represented that I don't know about because we just haven't been hearing about them. So yes, the portrayal of that world was very white to the detriment of us all. Well, you mentioned that, you know, where came from the U.S. to Canada and lived his life in Alberta. And I guess, you know, Canadians have an idea that racism in Canada isn't as bad or wasn't as bad in uh, here as it was in the U.S. And uh, I guess I wonder if, uh, if, that's, if, the, if that's a myth as well. That is a myth. I don't think we can quantify racism. I think the notion that people live with fear and pain and lack of opportunity based on their race, regardless of how that is manifested in the society they're living in, is very damaging. So Canadians have been given a kind of uh, a nice bedtime story about who we have been and who we are around issues of race that is not accurate. And that's very damaging. Hmm. Well, not many docs, I think, start as plays. And this mm -hmm. was a play that you had written um, could you just talk a bit about, I guess, how the process of turning a play into a doc and uh, why you felt you needed to do a doc? As uh, like, was there more information that you thought you could tell uh, in a documentary as opposed to on stage? The play evolved out of a Black History Month presentation I did in 2012, and I had no intention of taking it any further than that. But there was such interest in John Ware. And there was interest in the way I had chosen to tell the story by linking it to my own story, by sharing how powerful the discovery of John Ware was for me and what a, what a wonderful impact it had on my life, uh, that I then started to work on the play. And after doing the play, the play is a play. It's an imagination. You, you think of the word play and, and how it evokes um, kind of almost like, like what you do in childhood, where you imagine a world and you inhabit it and you live in it. And it really means something to you when you're a child. That, that world is real to you in, in that moment. My play is is like that it's an act of the imagination and so i took more liberties with that story well i mean obviously i i'm in a world where john ware is as well he's in my time i'm in his time there you know we talk to each other in the play and that obviously is made up <laughs> and it was very important to me that people understood that the dialogue that I was making up for John and Mildred, his wife, was made up. I wasn't a fly on the wall in 1892 when they got married. Um, 
but I did again experience such a powerful response to him. He's such a magnetic figure that I realized there was an appetite for something that was more fact-based, something that I, in which I could say, this is what I know to be true, or this is what I strongly believe based on the research that I've done. So there are elements from the play that are in the film, such as uh, some of the music from the play. And I don't think any of the anecdotes from John Ware's life are in the play. So there are definitely links between them, but it is, um, it is a separate project. It is a part of my overall ambition to reclaim John Ware's story in a lot of different ways. Well, one expert you, um, I guess, count on for, uh, for your research is, uh, is John Ware's daughter, uh, who is uh, Dr. Amanda Janet Ware. Uh, she was known by her nickname, Nettie. And uh, I guess she kind of chronicled her family's story. Can you talk a bit about her and I guess uh, how, how helpful her, her, um, her notes were to you in your research? Finding Nettie's notes and archives was a total game changer in terms of my John Ware research because she was able to add light and context to some of the things that had been written about John Ware by other people. I, be, I came to rely on her for whether I believed a particular mythological story or not. For example, there's a story in circulation that John Ware was on a date with Mildred and another couple, and their horses were struck dead by lightning. And John Ware strapped the wagon to himself and hauled the three people in it 20 miles or whatever it was to, to their destination. So the, the nugget of that story is true. The horses were struck by lightning. The notion that John Ware would strap the wagon to himself and pull three people is, 20 miles is pretty ludicrous. And it's one of those stories that on the surface seems like a compliment because he was very physically strong, but he wasn't an ox. He wasn't a beast. Uh, he went to his brother-in-law's place and borrowed a couple of horses and and got them home that way. And that story always felt strange to me until I encountered Nettie's notes about it in which she said, yeah, no, that didn't happen. Uh, here's how it happened. And, and the interesting thing about the story for her was that the horses were left there and people just started driving around them. So apparently, even to this day on that road or path, there is a uh, just an inexplicable curve in that road. And that's, that's why it's there. It's because people went around John Ware's dead horses for long enough that they wore ruts into the road. Wow. So Nettie's notes were really helpful for those kinds of things. For, for trying to sort out what was myth and what was true. Um, 
I recall being in a, a room with Nettie and Mildred Jr. when I was young and they were old. And at that time, they were simply two old women who were part of my community and I had no idea of the significance of them. I wish I had no had had known who they were were. Um, the name Ware had been familiar to me throughout my life because many people in my community were friends with Bob Ware and Nettie Ware in particular. Mildred was very shy and Arthur Ware had moved to Vancouver. William Ware died young, but my people knew the Wares. And so just that there are these two old Ware ladies there just didn't, it just didn't click for me at that time. These were uh, all uh, Nettie's siblings, I should just say. Yes, that's right. Um, they were alive, you know, well into my late teens and 20s. And I just wish I had uh, jumped on that situation earlier. So I got to know Nettie through her archives and not through conversation with her. But it was a, a beautiful gift to be able to have access to those archives. And I'm very grateful to the Mallory family of Kirkaldi who kept those things, boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff in their small house in this, you know, this tiny little town in Alberta because they knew the significance of what they had. And Nettie had left those things with them to care for. Hmm. And they don't have any descendants, I guess, eh? No, none of the Ware children had children. Do you ever think about what you, you would have asked John Ware if he was still alive? Like if you could have met him, what you would have said to him? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I, I, I had questions for him in my play. I get an opportunity to ask him some of those questions in my play. But I think a lot of my questions would have been around horsemanship. Um, I loved horses so much. And he was the king of riding and and horse care and he was like a horse whisperer so i think i would have had a lot of questions for him about uh about riding i think i could have become a much better rider with him as my coach <laughs> as my trainer well you know we kind of have to wrap up our conversation but you know it's uh, the film's been out i guess uh, has it been a year now that the film no, came out no it's been uh oh. since uh, late september it launched at the Calgary International Film Festival. So a few months. So, I mean, you know, how much more do you think you have to learn about John Warren? And I guess, where do you, where do you take, where do you go from here? Is there more information you hope to uncover? There is. I do feel there's more to learn about John Ware. I am fully aware of the challenges of that because uh, especially enslaved people, people who had been enslaved, had um, it's very challenging to do that research because the records were not kept. People barely even counted as human and sometimes weren't even named on censuses if they were on censuses at all. And actually John Ware was quite a common name. So there are challenges and I'm aware of them, but I still have some avenues I'm pursuing to learn more about John Ware. Well, I look forward to seeing more of your work and uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today on Ondocs. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was a real delight to be able to talk.
talk about John Ware with your listeners. And that's the podcast. You can watch John Ware Reclaimed on nfb.ca. If you like what you heard, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about us. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Lori Few. We'll catch you at the next screening. Mm-hmm.